It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with Yahoo Sports columnist and blogger Scott Pianowski next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, June 24th. It's show number 45 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with Yahoo Sports columnist and blogger Scott Pianowski about a controversial trade he made, players he's profiled recently, the surprising Kansas City Royals, some rising closers, and his studs and duds for the rest of the year. We'll also have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about home run per flyball ratio for hitters and pitchers. And in our Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com analyst Rob Gordon talks about Washington outfield prospect Michael Taylor. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout Edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Kendris Morales is turning out to be not quite what many fab bidders had hoped. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, when Kendris Morales signed with Minnesota, well, I don't know about your league, but in my American League only, a team went all in on the fab bidding, going his remaining $230 of a $260 budget. I wanted Morales too, but I outsmarted myself on the bidding because I also wanted to bid on Cam Bedrosian of the Angels. A story unto itself. It's a keeper league. Of course, I was heartsick during Morales' first four games when he raked to the tune of a 412 BA, a 444 on base percentage, a 588 slugging, and a 1033 OPS. Oh no, I thought, I've lost another Miguel Cabrera. But from the fifth game on, Morales has gone 118, 189, 118 for a 307 OPS. And overall for the year, his line is now a 216 batting average and a 547 OPS with no home runs and just five RBIs. Basically, I missed out on another Andy Chavez, only without the stolen bases. This is not to suggest that every all-in fab bid is a bad idea, nor that Kendris Morales is finished as a hitter. All it means is that nothing in baseball or fantasy baseball is for sure. And that's what makes it fun. And speaking of fun, we open our Tuesday Tout Edition with our feature expert interview. It's Yahoo Sports columnist and blogger Scott Pianowski. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick, uh, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk on your award-winning podcast. We always start by asking our Tuesday Tout expert, how are your teams doing in expert leagues? I have my tail between my legs a little bit in the league that we're in together. Um, we're both in the Tout Mixed League, and, and even though I've been as high as, I think, sixth place recently, um, my team sank down to 11th this week. It certainly, barring a miracle, isn't going to win. Uh, I still think maybe, and, and perhaps this is delusion, but I still think maybe I can get into a respectable 5th, 6th, 7th by the end of the year. I, I'd be happy with that. I'm, I'm certainly going to try every week. I make bids every week. But uh, I know that team isn't going to win. I do have eight other teams, and... There's only one team that, that's really a lost cause. I have one team that has this absolute shipwreck. But uh, it seems like five, I think five of the other uh, teams are, are in first, second, or third right now. I have a team that's one slot out of a playoff berth in a head-to-head league. And in a keeper league, I run with my buddy Scott Gleason, uh, my long-running Chelmsford league. I know we talked about that the last time I was, I was here, so I want to give those guys a shout-out. Uh, we, we won the league last year. We're actually, we had to pick last every round in the draft, a, a big uh, just hurdle to clear, and we've actually brought that team into contention. We may have a chance to cash, and if we don't, we'll be in good position for next year. So that's certainly a, a positive development there. Anyway, it's, it's Patrick. It's like that bumper sticker. You know, my other car is a Porsche. You know, yeah. when you look at my mediocre Tout Wars team, uh, I, I just kind of shrug and say, well, at least my other teams are doing better. How much of the, how your teams are performing so far this year, especially the ones that are struggling, do you attribute to uh, just bad selections uh, coming into draft versus? 
good selections coming into draft that had bad performances that couldn't have been accounted for. You know, the funny thing is, I, I try not to spend too much time on this, but it seems like one of the years this year is one of the seasons where I got a lot of things wrong in March. I really liked Austin Jackson. He was on a bunch of my teams before the season. I had a lot of reasons why I liked him. I thought he was healthy. I thought he would run more with with Brad Osmus. I thought maybe Leland Levin would be good for him. He's still in a good age pocket, and he's been awful. The only good thing about him is in a couple of leagues, I actually did something we'll talk about a little bit later, where I actually sold a little bit low on Jackson, thinking maybe it's going to get worse, and it has gotten worse. But uh, Jackson was a guy I missed on. I, I avoided Evan Gaddis in, in the spring, and I, I get tweeted about that every time he hits a home run. Somebody reminds me that Evan Gaddis is having a terrific season. I feel like I didn't get a lot of things right in March. And the thing that's been a saving grace is that I've, for whatever reason, been lucky enough to get early, get in early on some guys like Charlie Blackman. We'll talk about him a little bit later. Sean Doolittle. Uh, there's been a, there are, these guys are weren't really on my radar before the season. I didn't draft Blackman anywhere. I, I certainly didn't think Doolittle was going to close. I thought Jim Johnson was in good shape there. I mean, they're, they're paying him as a closer. And for whatever reason, I've been able to get a lot of guys like that, and I think I've made some good in-season adjustments. So, I, I, Bottom line, this may have been my worst March of the last five or ten years for giving out advice. And then to anybody who has Austin Jackson on my recommendation, I you know, look, I, I thought it was a good call at the time. But it's also a game of adjustments, especially in some of these mixed leagues where you're going to have a very high uh, player replacement level. Uh, you guys you can get for free. You, you really have to try to figure out the season before the other player because there's going to be a lot of, as, as Peter Kortzer would say, free stuff comes into the league. And I think I've been fortunate to get some of that stuff. Scott, you raised quite a controversy on your Yahoo Sports blog when you traded Sin Tzu Chu to our mutual friend Jeff Erickson in one of your leagues for Coco Crisp, and your readers really blasted you for it. What were you thinking uh, about taking what looks like 75 cents on the dollar to, to get Coco Crisp at the expense of Shin Tzu Chu? I know people say for years, you know, buy low, sell high. and I almost think it's one of those things where, remember joking the Flintstones, where everybody was buy, 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 well, everybody's buying, well, sell, sell, sell. Sometimes I like to zag when other people are zigging, and I think actually selling low sometimes makes a little bit of sense. In the case of Chu, I thought this Texas lineup was going to be better than it is. I thought it would be maybe a top five, top six lineup. You know, Fielder's been a bust. Uh, the top ten in scoring right now. Chu's playing through a bum ankle, and it doesn't seem like he wants to run at all. They moved him down in the lineup. And this is the team, the real main reason I did this, other than you know, I was concerned that maybe Chu could bottom out a little bit and I wanted to cash in before maybe it collapsed completely. But the main reason I did this is that my team has a very good offense, but the one category where I have a lot of room for movement is stolen bases. Now, if Chu's got this bad ankle and doesn't want to run, or if they're moving into a lineup spot but they don't want him to run, if for whatever reason, Sinsu Chu is not a stolen base player for me, I thought, okay, I can get crisp. I know what a, what a great beast stealer he is, and he'll do other things as well. But if this helps me in this category, if this, the bottom line is if a trade helps you in the standing, if you can, we're trying to work a puzzle here. If you think, and it sounds like the simplest thing, the most obvious thing, if you think a trade is going to help you in the standings, it doesn't matter what you paid for them in March. It doesn't matter. Oh, granted, I want to put you out in the market and make sure I wasn't missing some great opportunity, which I, I'm pretty confident I wasn't. But it doesn't really matter if you're trading the better player to get the quote-unquote weaker player, as long as you can make a case for how it helps you categorically. In this case, I needed steals. I don't think Chu's going to provide very many of them. I think he may have none the rest of the year. I know Chris can run. I think he's in a better lineup. Oakland leads the majors and runs scored. So because the puzzle made sense to me, because the potential gain in the standings made sense for me, to me it was a trade that I had no trouble making. This is something that to me is the is the one big idea that a lot of even seasoned, experienced fantasy, especially rotisserie players make, is the unwillingness to look at how the trade affects the categories rather than the names that are being exchanged or the salaries or what round each each of the guys was uh, taken in. Because as soon as the draft is over, as you say, once the draft is over, the salaries don't matter. The round picked, it doesn't matter. If you can make a move with 10 stolen bases and gain six points, then it's foolish not to acquire 10 stolen bases, especially if it costs you whatever it costs you in the terms of Shin Su Chu, probably a few home runs, and because he's, of where he is in the order, maybe some RBIs. But I assume that in those categories, you didn't see that much damage or, or any room to grow. No, not at all. I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm pretty sure I'm ahead 
in RBIs. I'm doing very well in home runs. It, it turns out the only offensive category I'm struggling in is stolen bases. And not only that, but if you look five or six teams ahead of me, they're all in reach. I'm, one guy could make a difference. So I, I can't say enough. It sounds like we're on the same page here. It's all about categories. It's all about impact. And sometimes you'll even make a trade to a team because you want them to improve in a category. If you can help a team to move past rivals of yours, that's a gain as well. We're trying to figure it, It's a big Rubik's Cube. You know, we're just trying to figure out the puzzle and don't get hung up on what, what you thought in March. You don't get hung up on name brands. You know, there's so many players I see. So many times I see rankings or I see players and, and people, and we'll talk about this a little bit later too with some of my guys I like and don't like, it doesn't matter who the name is. All, we're just in it for the numbers. And it's amazing to me how often that trips people up sometimes. As a corollary to that, another thing that surprises me a lot is I get trade offers, especially in, in not in my Tout Wars League, but in my other league, I'll get a trade offer from a guy who's 25 home runs behind the, last, the second to last place guy, and he wants to trade to get some home runs off of me. And even if he picks up Miguel Cabrera and gets 25 home runs, everybody else is going to move up at the same pace and he's going to be last in home runs anyway. And it seems to me that if you are at the bottom of a category, you have just as much dealing strength as if you're at the top of it in that you can't go below one point. So if you're, if you're going to take a one in home runs or a one in stolen bases and you can deal somebody from that category to shore up, I don't know, one of the, the categories that are usually tighter wins, saves sometimes, uh, homers and RBIs. Uh, why wouldn't you? That's a great point. You know, one of my teams is actually in second place right now. It's a league where you only get 20 pickups for the season. So uh, obviously, talk about the excruciating patience that the, the baseball HQ talks about. I mean, you really need it in that league because you don't want to spend them all too quickly. Anyway, my bullpen, that's one. That's the one league. I've been very lucky. My bullpens have been pretty good this year, but that's the one league where my bullpen really crapped out on me. And so at one point I said, you know what? With 20 pickups, I don't have enough resources to chase saves. I had one reliable closer. I can't remember who it was, but I had one reliable closer. I thought, I can't compete in this category. Too many people are ahead of me already, have multiple guys. So, you know what? If you're going to punt, do a full punt. You know, get, get down there and, and kick the ball. So I, I said that my, I was going to trade my last closer. I, there's no point in con- continuing with the save chase. And, and you know, it's incredibly liberating, too. I generally don't like punting a category. I think you want to be good in everything. But there are rare cases where I'll actually try it. And in that one league, you know, the, the, the Rays closers or the Mets closers or you know, some of these teams, what's going on with the Tigers, I don't have to worry about it because I've, I've just given up on saves. And I'm still in second place. Maybe I could win the league. It might be a long shot with one category. It's going to be you know, just a one-point thing. But as you said, you know, if you don't have it, if it's not working for you in that category, just give up because you're not, I mean, you'll see a logical path that includes not competing in that category because it might just be too difficult to do it. And I think we should be clear that there's a difference between punting a category at the outset of the league going into draft saying, I'm not going to get any closers, is fundamentally different from getting two months into the season, realizing you haven't got a chance in the category, and punting it at that point. Because in the former case, you have to get every other decision right. And in the latter case, when you know you're going to lose saves anyway, you have at least a chance of figuring out where you can make the most hay by trading your closer to get wins or steals or whatever it is that you think you can get that will help you in a category because you know where you stand. And, and one other thing about punting, in one of my leagues, in the Yahoo Friends and Family League, I decided to try as an experiment, just I want to try something different. I've done well in that league before. I decided to actually punt two categories before the season just to see if it would work. That's a league where offense is treated very much as the thing to get, and people don't even there's an innings cap in that league, and people treat starting pitching like it's like it's garbage, like it's radioactive. They don't want to go near it. So I decided to get as many hitters as I could, and just get some pretty good closers and ignore starting pitching. Now you have a low innings cap in that league, so I thought if I need to go to Plan B later and try to get pitching, I can always do that. I could just try to mix and match some waiver pickups. I got Phil Hughes in that league, Kyle Loesch. They've been good for me, as you can tell. It's a mixed league although it is a 15-team league. It's very similar to tout in roster construction and the player penetration. In any event, I decided to to dump strikeouts because I wasn't going to get any starting pitching and dump wins because I wasn't going to get any starting pitching and thinking, can I get enough points competing the other eight categories to potentially win? Now, what's happened in that league is my team is actually around a point total that I thought could win the league. But what hasn't worked out is the people ahead of me in the standings, that Chris Liss is winning that league in, in a romp right now, 
He's been so dominant. He's grabbed so many potential points. I thought the league would be more competitive top to bottom, that nobody could just be across the board good in everything. It would just be too difficult to do. And that's why I thought maybe punting could work. Here's the point, the takeaway. If you're going to punt before the season, and I would say uh, it's probably not a good idea, but I want to try something different. I've been playing the game for 20 years. I want to do an experiment. If you're going to punt, it better be in the league where you feel like every point in the standing is going to be fought for, where nobody's going to tank the season. Because punting will not work if you think the person who wins the league is going to have a very, very high percentage of the points. You need it to be a league where somebody doesn't, and I don't have percentages in mind here, but I thought maybe 105 points might win this league. Right now, this has 120. I've done fine getting my 105, but I can't compete with the 120. So now I have to decide if I just want to junk the strategy, even though I think in some semblance, it did work because I'm around the point total I thought I could get with punting. But because this has been so dominant and a couple other teams are over me as well, maybe it didn't work. So if you're going to think about a preseason punt, and again, I, I think you're better off just trying to be good in everything. But if you are going to preseason punt, it better be because you think the league A to Z is very strong and every point will be contested. I was going to say, a lot of times it shouldn't matter whether the league is strong or not. I mean, I think the mixed Tout Wars League is a strong league. It's got a lot of good players in it. And uh, I think our point spread starts at 118 or so. Fred Zinke is up there, as usual, I might add. And then down at the bottom, you've got guys around 60 or 65. and It's, it's actually one owner with 32 points, which, which is shocking to me. But uh, in this particular guy, I, I don't want to say his name because I don't, I don't want to you know, take a shot at him. He's somebody I like and respect. But it just shows what can happen when somebody has everything crap out on this. This team's just had injuries like crazy and guys who I think everybody liked in March who haven't worked out. And Sometimes people just have a perfect storm season like that. Yeah, which makes the uh, which makes the punting strategy even more um, hazardous, I think, because you really can't count on a hundred and five points winning a, a five by five league in any year. Because um, Chris List is a good player; he's all. It sounds like he's probably had some pretty good luck with his players as well, and that almost always happens. I think I've been in tout three years, and I think it's been one. 118, 116, all three years I've been in it to, to win, so could be pretty difficult. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, to me, one of the big stories of the season so far has been the surge of the Kansas City Royals. How about them? First place in the American League Central. So I'll give you three questions to ruminate on. First, are the Royals for real? And can they win the AL Central? That's two. And more importantly for our listeners, what effect might the success of the Royals have for fantasy owners? Well, you know, I think this is probably going to be the best pennant race in baseball. Now, Detroit actually, I believe, snuck into first place over the weekend when they finally started playing some decent baseball. But there's only seven games separating the first-place Tigers from the last-place White Sox. And I don't see much separation between any of these teams. I don't think Detroit is great by any means. I don't think the last-place team in Chicago is bad by any means. Minnesota's close to 500. I think Cleveland still is a good team. In the case of Kansas City, I, I think they're as strong as anybody. And it's kind of funny. A lot of times on social media and on Twitter the last few years, we've made fun of Ned Yost like crazy, just, you know, boom, Yosted when he does some of these crazy things, doesn't want to use his closer outside of safe situations. I know everybody does that, but some of his lineup construction is very odd. But then for a while, everything he did worked. I mean, he was like the guy at the blackjack table who was, you know, who was hitting, you know, hitting 18 and, and getting a three. I, they had a two-week segment where it seemed like nothing could go wrong interesting team for roto purposes you know alex gordon's a player i really like because he's good at just about everything he's not dominant in any one area i think these players are generally underrated bill james used to talk about dwight evans a player who's very good at a lot of different things but maybe not dominant in one area i guess he could have been dominant defensively but that doesn't always draw attention i love fantasy players good at everything not dominant in one area michael brantley's like that Shane Victorino back in the day when he was healthy was like that. Daniel Murphy of the Mets is a fantastic example. He's good at so many things, but nothing jumps off the page. Alex Gordon's become that type of player. He's actually the rare guy who, even though he's having a nice season, I think his fantasy owners might underappreciate him because there's no shiny number. He's not hitting 330. He doesn't have 62 RBIs. He doesn't have 20 home runs. So he's become one of my favorite players. One of my least favorite players on the Royals, Eric Hosmer. Two things drive me crazy with this guy. One, he hits the ball on the ground so much. We need you to elevate the ball. We need line drives. We need balls going over the fence sometimes. And also, I don't know if there's anything necessarily predictive about this, but I saw the other day the stats for all the regular hitters in baseball against certain pitch types, 
Eric Hosmer is the worst hitter in baseball against the fastball. Now, I don't think the fastball. I think the fastball's here to stay. I think yeah. you see fastballs every day of the week. If you tell me you have the worst performance, the worst run expectancy against the fastball, that makes me nervous. I've, I've done no research on that, and you know maybe it's. I don't know if there's enough data to trust it for you know 2014, but that does make me nervous. One of the Royal makes me nervous, and, and I hate to say this because he's so much fun. Yordano Ventura, six feet tall. The guy throws around 100, 99, 100. It just makes me nervous. I, I know we're all kind of grasping at straws. Or why do these pitching injuries come about? Why has it been such a bad year, a bad few years? Tommy John surgeries left and right. I want to see these bigger pitchers where the ball just kind of easy comes out of their arm. And, oh, wow, he's throwing 95, 96. It barely looks like he's trying. With a shorter pitcher, seems like more max effort. He's hitting the gun that high. If I were in a keeper league, and I, and I hate saying this because I love watching him pitch, and he's really a lot of fun, I'm just, and I'm not a doctor. This is I'm totally spitballing here, and maybe I'm totally off base, and please tell me, Patrick, if you think I am. But when the shorter guys throw this hard, I get to admit it makes me nervous. You know, and again, we're, maybe we're going to know. I, I, I know that we're going to know a lot more about these types of things in a few years, in five years, in ten years. Obviously, there's a data explosion going on in baseball. We're going to have all sorts of measurements that we haven't had before. And just think of the dark ages. I remember, you know, Mark Fidrich, you know, had a torn rotator cuff, and nobody, I think it took seven or eight years to diagnose it. Before, I think it was James Andrews finally said, yeah, you know, your, your rotator cuff shot. And this guy, this poor guy was, was going trudging through the minors trying to recapture his 1976 season, didn't realize that, he, you know, basically his body was breaking down. It's amazing how many times he must have gone in and been examined. And people said, oh, okay, rehab it, rest it, you know, work out harder, whatever they must have told him. So just think of how far we've come in 20 or 30 years. I mean, I'm sure in, in 10 or 20 years we'll probably have a pretty good grasp of what's going on. But in the meantime, teams have tried all sorts of things to save the pitcher, and I don't know that anything specifically is working better than anything else. And, you know, it's funny. I'm curious what your take is. I don't think I've ever heard you talk about this. I think the Nationals made a mistake when they rested Strasburg in the playoffs a few years ago because I think there's so much randomness to some of these pitching injuries. You might as well use the guys when you have a chance. And they were close, and then you know Strasburg didn't throw a crazy amount of innings that year. I think it's ludicrous that they didn't use him in the playoffs. I think it was 2012. I mean, to me, so much of this is random, and you can't prevent it. That you might as well, when you have a chance, take a swing at it. Certainly, he would have preferred it that way. I think I'm fairly convinced that the 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 key point when you're trying to predict whether a pitcher is more prone to an injury during a year is counting his number of high-stress pitches versus an overall general pitch count. Just saying he's thrown X number of pitches or X number of innings in a year seems to me to be kind of a blunt measure, as they did with Strasburg. He hit whatever it was, 110 innings at the time, and they said, okay, that's the cutoff point. Well, there's a big difference between 110 innings where you're throwing 12 pitches an inning and never in any trouble and hardly ever a base runner on versus 110 innings where you know you're pitching from the stretch two thirds of the time and and you're you're going to 12 and 13 pitch counts against individual hitters and lots of foul offs and stuff like that. I, I think the Strasburg thing. I, I agree with you. I I don't know what their measure was. It was publicly stated at 110 or whatever it was innings. They may have had some other metric that we don't know about, and and maybe they were right and we were wrong. But um, I, I agree with you about that. That whole issue is not well understood and not as well understood, certainly, as it's going to be. And I think anybody who can figure it out in the fantasy world is going to be at a huge advantage in season-long leagues when uh, if they can figure out this is a guy I need to avoid because last year he threw – you know, 25% stressful pitches, I'll call them, because there were guys on base or guys in scoring position, versus a similar pitcher who had very few stressful pitches and very few high-pitch individual innings and so forth. That's a great point. And, you know, again, whoever gets to that first is going to have a huge advantage. But one thing that's tricky about that, is I remember at one point not that long ago, a lot of people were talking about the Verducci effect and talking about increases in innings over certain increments and stuff. And then there's been a lot of data and research done on that that says, you know, the Verducci effect isn't really something to worry about, that, that maybe it's been overblown or, or completely irrelevant. And that's one of the tricky things, and I have no perfect answer here, but one of the tricky things about the data revolution in this age of enlightenment is sometimes you can be so excited if you think you see something that's legitimate and it might turn out to be a false positive or maybe even to just something that leads you down the wrong corridor completely. If nothing else, though, we can always point to one thing. And I know this is a simple rule that most people realize already, but until I come up with something better, I'm still going to live by it. When I'm in a keeper league, 
get me those hitters, man. I, I mean, I, I keep a pitcher if I like them at the right price and everything, but all else equal, any keepable pitcher that, that's young, and because, and, again, these guys, the risk seems to go down after they've proven themselves and pitched for a while. But some of these young pitchers, if, if I can get a decent hitter in, in place of the decent pitcher on my keeper roster, I mean, again, I know most people realize this, but I, I'm still playing that way. I do not want to come back with a bunch of pitchers in my keeper league. Give me the hitters. They're just much more predictable. Again, in keeper leagues, especially salary-type games or games where you have a round price to pay, uh, price comes into it a lot, too. And, you know, would you rather have Miguel Cabrera at $50 or Max Scherzer at 18 You know, of course, Cabrera's the more reliable guy. Scherzer's proved that this year, heaven knows. But at 18 bucks, he's a much much more uh, attractive keeper than anybody at $50, regardless of, of, of effort. Uh, Scott, in a recent column, you said you've been fooled by J.D. Martinez of the, uh, in two previous seasons, 2011 and 2012, and I can say lots of us are in that boat. He's playing very well again for Detroit this season, and I wonder, do you think it's for real, or are we being fooled again? The point here is I think there's a chance that it's real. I don't know that it's real, and there's a roster gridlock problem in Detroit. Obviously, Austin Jackson's going to play center field. That's not going to change. His defense is so good, even if he's not hitting. But they have Raja Davis, they have Martinez, Torrey Hunter's going to be back, Andy Dirks, who's the only left-handed hitter at some point, returns. So it could be complicated there. But here's, here's the interesting thing about Martinez. His minor league numbers, 332 average, 394 on base, 548 slugging. It's fantastic. This guy never had a bad minor league season, and he wasn't old for levels. You know, he came, he came in the Astros organization in, at age 21. He, he got up to the majors at age 23. You know, he went down needed more seasoning when he wasn't hitting, doing what they wanted to do. Walked uh, not very much with the Astros. He struck out too much. He has no real defensive value and doesn't really run. So if this guy's not hitting, he's not producing. But I wonder why the Astros gave up so quickly on him. I mean, he, Martinez did a bunch of things changing his mechanics, his, his, bat, his bat position and stride before the season. And the Astros still cut him before the the year started, and then Martinez goes down the AAA with the Tigers. They don't really need him, but they take a chance on him. He has 10 home runs in 17 games. He's up with the club now. He's hitting you know, so well right now. He's behind Miguel Cabrera and Victor Martinez in the lineup, which is a good place to be. They're going to be on base a lot. The bottom line is, is there a chance that this is real? Is there plausible upside here? Because I think there is. I've taken the chance on Martinez in a couple of leagues where I think it's easy to U-turn out of. I, I wouldn't want to have to spend resources where I need Martinez to be good, but I do think he's going to get the majority of bats in, in left field. I don't think they're tied to Davis at all, who's a, who's a player with his own fleas, not much of a defender. He certainly doesn't get on base a lot. I think the chance Martinez is more or less the regular left fielder. It's tricky because they're both right-handed hitters. And you know, I think he could hit 10 to 15 home runs the rest of the way. I think there's a good enough chance that in a, in a mixed league, I think it's a great guy you kick the tires on. Harold Nichols and I talked last week about Alex Wood of the Braves getting stretched out in the minors to take a spot in the rotation probably within a few weeks. Then they lose Gavin Floyd, so it looks like Wood's time is now. How confident are you that uh, Alex Wood can deliver the goods in Atlanta? Yeah, I love Alex Wood. I know the last time we talked, he was one of the guys who I promoted, and actually one of the March picks I think I got right. And then just when the season's you know, rolling along merrily, they decide to take him out of the rotation. They have all this depth here, and, and to some degree they wanted to limit his innings. You know, when I watch him pitch, and I'm not a scout. I've watched a lot of baseball. I think I have an intelligent opinion on it. I am definitely not a scout, so I, I want to put the proverbial grain of salt in him and play here. He reminds me of Chris Sale. He's, he's got that same kind of funky rotation and and. and spin and mechanics when he throws and obviously they're both left-handed and, and granted a lot of scouts have been worried about Chris Sale from the moment he turned pro saying oh you know with the inverted W and he's going to get hurt and you know, all this stuff all, all I see is Chris Sale mowing guys down Alex Wood hasn't been quite that good but I think he's hard to hit I think batters hate facing this guy he keeps the ball in the park the walks and strikeouts look good he actually has better numbers in the rotation than, than in the bullpen maybe he was struggling with that adjustment bottom line I think he, if he, he sticks in the rotation, and part of that is you know, a little bit selection bias because it assumes he'll pitch well enough to stick in the rotation, but I think he's the top 30 starter the rest of the way. I think if things really click here, this division, nobody can hit. The Marlins are pretty good with scoring, but, but the other teams in this division all can't hit. You want to attack the NL East? I think Wood could be a top 15, top 20 starter. I think his stuff's that good. 
And unfortunately, the Braves, you know, for a winning team, they make a lot of strange moves. Why does B.J. Upton hit second? Why is Alex Wood not in the rotation? Well, you know what? He has to be now. And I, I tell you, if you can get him, I think if anybody has him in your league, they probably are excited to get him. You probably can't trade for him right now, but I know he's available in maybe half of Yahoo leagues. If you can get Alex Wood for free right now, God, you know, stop listening right now and do it and come back and check in with us. If you can eat, trade for him, if you can, you can trade somebody, maybe a top 40, top 50 starter, and take a chance on Alex Wood, there's a gigantic upside here. I always laugh whenever I hear them talking about the inverted W, because to me, an inverted W is just an M. Why don't they just call it an M? <laughs> uh, I know you always like to keep your eyes peeled for uh, closers who aren't on rosters at the start of the year. You got Sean Doolittle, I believe, early on in uh, a couple of your leagues. Any other rising closers you think we could maybe hoard for later on this season when they get promoted into the big job? Uh, it's a shame we didn't talk a week ago because uh, Mark Melanson would have been the first guy, and I, I know a lot of people were on that too. Just Jason Grilly didn't look right. And, and if people own Grilly out there, if, if unless you have a gigantic amount of roster space, I would just drop him. I don't think he's going to close the rest of the year. He's just not throwing the ball by anybody, and Melanson can handle that job. I want to see what happens in San Diego. They just fired their GM. Now, Houston Street has, has proven to be effective and healthy. Usually he gets hurt every year. It hasn't happened yet. But if he gets traded, then look, they're, they're out of it. They're switching GMs. I think you're going to see some pieces moved. And what what does that you know? Joe Sheen always says this one of your one of your podcast guests and a friend of mine. He always talks about a closer being a uh, a resource that a losing team doesn't need. It's like extravagant. It, it's superfluous. And I think the Padres are going to say, you know what, we can move some of these relievers. So I think Street is a trade target. I think even though Joaquin Benoit is a guy I would love to roster, and I have in a few leagues, and I think you go get him if you're trying to speculate. I could see him being traded too. Maybe Dale Thayer becomes the the guy. Bottom line, I don't think Street's here the whole season. I, I certainly think at least one of these guys gets traded. Could Street go to Detroit maybe? Could he go to Anaheim? Or I won't call them the L.A. Angels or the Anaheim Angels to me. I think there's a good chance Street's on the market and moved to somebody. So maybe somebody like Benoit steps into a job. Or if they both get moved, maybe Dale Thayer steps in. Now, a player everybody likes, and, and so I'm not dusting off anything new here. Tell him this man. I don't care if you're in fantasy or not. I don't care. I'm not a Yankees fan. I grew up in New England. I hate the Yankees. But when this guy's on the mound, that's all I, all I can watch is, that, is this guy. You know, they finally harness his mechanics a little bit. He's, he's in a relief role where he can be. Just let it all hang out. Don't worry about pacing yourself. That curveball is gorgeous. David Robertson's been fine as a closer, but he's in his final year of his contract. Maybe he doesn't come back in a keeper league. God, I love Patances. I think he's their closer next year. If Robertson has any kind of a hiccup this year, if he gets hurt, if he slumps, even if the Yankees fall out of it and say, you know what, let's just see if Patances can handle it. Ninth inning is a little bit different mentally. I think that's overblown sometimes, but it's not completely irrelevant. Bottom line, I think Patances is their closer next year. I think he could be their closer this year. Scott, you had another recent column that you called the Matt Cain problem. So what is Matt Cain's problem, and in general, how should fantasy owners respond? The funny thing about Matt Cain is, is for a long time, his greatest skill, and it beguiled so many, so many spreadsheet guys, is that he kept the ball in the park, that his home run to flying ball ratio was so much better than the league average. Now, last year it finally climbed over 10%, and this year it's 15.1%, even though it's Velocity is static. It hasn't, you know, a lot of times you see guys struggle. Justin Verlander struggled. His velocity is all over the map. Kane's velocity has been very static for the last few years. Part of his problem is he's had more road starts than home starts. He's actually had seven starts on the road. He's had four at home. He's been a little bit hurt. But, you know, again, names and numbers. I see the strikeout rate under seven per nine. The way guys strike out today, that is not a number I'm willing to live with. He's walking more batters than ever, or at least in five or six years, his walk rate's the highest it's been. I think he's somewhat culpable for the home run problem. I don't think fly balls are one giant lottery. If you miss your spots more often, if you throw more hittable strikes, you're just going to pay the price more often. Matt came to me, if you're in a very thin mixed league, I think you could conceivably think about dropping him. I think he's going to be a 3-5 Three seven, three eight guy the rest of the year stocking ERA. I think his whip's going to be maybe around 125. That's rosterable, and it's certainly NL only. You have to keep him. But I'll tell you what, Matt Cain's a big name. He's thrown a perfect game. Everybody knows who he is. The moment consumer confidence is restored with this guy, he throws a nice game, has a shutout. He's, I think he's facing the Padres this week, which is obviously a good matchup. I would try to move him. I think Matt Cain has dropped a level in performance. 
I think the home run problem is partially his fault. Obviously, the strikeouts are down, the walks are up. That's never good. We have to treat Matt Cain as the guy he is now, which is somebody I don't think is trustable week to week. And finally, uh, your shuffle-up column last week looked at middle infielders. Uh, first, maybe you could explain to our listeners what the shuffle-up column is and then what conclusions you drew about that middle infield position that is suddenly pretty rich in fantasy production. You know what's really crazy? I, I realized that didn't hit me until last week. Season full of injuries. And I know you talked about a lot in this podcast, uh, how many guys have gotten hurt. Middle infield has not been hurt much by injuries. There's been plenty of guys who haven't played well. But for whatever reason, and you always think, I always think about second base as being this attrition position, and you're turning the double play, and guys are trying to take you out. For whatever reason, guys aren't getting hurt there. But although, granted, there may be some players playing hurt, and I'll talk about one when we get to the, the final segment. But uh, it's interesting that you haven't seen a lot of injuries there for whatever reason, although plenty of big names are slumping. A couple of guys who really impressed me. One guy I've been on all year is Brian Dozier. Improved his walk rate. Moved up in the lineup. And I'll say, if there's one type of player where lineup uh, spot really matters, I think it's with the guys who steal bases, especially in the National League. It doesn't apply to Dozier. But if I have a guy who I think is going to steal bases for me, I want him batting first or second. I don't want him batting eighth or ninth. Anyway, better approach at the plate. He's working with Paul Molitor. He's become a more aggressive base stealer and a more successful base stealer. And his power goes back a year. Brian Dozier didn't go off to a good start this year. He's been good since the middle of last year, maybe even around May or June. If you run numbers on the last calendar year, he's the best home run stolen base guy at the second base position by a mile. You get him for Dustin Pedroia, I would do that so fast. I would add Pedroia and something to get Dozier. I know he might hit 240 or 250. His batting average is a little bit artificially low right now. But Category Juice pays the bills. He's in a really good lineup spot. I believe in this Molitor effect. I love that he's walking more. He's going to be a very good player in four categories, and it's hard to find those guys. Brian Dozier, if I was in tout right now, we were restarting, I would, and he's actually on my roster. I traded for him. I would push him into the 20s without hesitation. Another player I really like a lot, Jose Altuve in Houston, proved just about everything. More walks, less strikeouts, more contact. More line drives. He's running more and running more efficiently. That's not a great lineup there, but anything, any basic or secondary metric you look at with Jose Altuve backs him up. To me, he's the number two second baseman on the board right now behind Cano. And if somebody, if somebody, if I had Cano and I could get Jose Altuve for him, given that Cano's not hitting for a lot of power this year, I think you could conceivably do that trade. You mentioned a Molitor effect, uh, the uh, impact that a good, solid uh, coach can have on a player performance. Uh, I know over the last few years we've really been interested in that effect as far as pitchers are concerned with Mike Maddox in Texas, Leo Mazzoni in Atlanta particularly, and uh, even Dave Duncan. Are there any other coaches out there right now you think that we should be watching because they tend to bring out the best in their players? Or conversely, are there any coaches or organizations out there you think give us reason to avoid players because they seem to bring out the worst? That's an outstanding, outstanding question. I'll get mentioned a couple of pitching coaches I really like. Kurt Young in Oakland, I think, has done an amazing job. You think, of where did Jesse Chavez come from? It's not a Chavez. It's not, it's not just because the park's big. It's not just because the defense is, I think, pretty good, although I haven't run metrics on defense in a while. So if, I, if Oakland's defense is actually bad this year, you can tell me about it on Twitter, and, and I'll, you know, I'll nod to you. But I, I'm pretty sure they have a good defense there. I know the park's big, but I love some of the work that Kurt Young's done there. And, and although it hasn't worked with everybody this year, Ray Searage, the pitching coach in Pittsburgh, I think has had some amazing success with guys. A.J. Burnett, everybody was down on. Francisco Liriano, everybody was down on. Liriano hasn't been great this year, but I think Ray Searage gives you a chance. Obviously, when Duncan was still in the game, he was somebody we liked. As far as the the other effect, you know, who could hurt a player, I think a lot of times I get nervous with organizations that don't trust young players. Look at Devin Mezzarocco in Cincinnati. Okay, When he was with Dusty Baker, Dusty Baker wanted to play veteran catchers. He didn't want Mezzarocco to play. If he goes into a 1-for-11 slump, he might get benched. All of a sudden, he's with a new manager who seems to be fine with playing a young catcher. And maybe it's you know, just because something preceded something else doesn't mean it was, you know, there's a cause effective relationship here. Things can be, there can be two things going on that aren't necessarily related. But I think Devin Mazzarocco was helped by getting away from Dusty Baker. Some managers don't like to play young players. Some managers, again, lineup construction can be crazy. I think the Braves make more decisions in any good team I've ever seen. I talked about B.J. Upton earlier. I don't know why he hits second 
Uh, they finally moved Tommy Lestella to the leadoff spot, which I think is a good move. But so some of the, that's some of the stuff I look for in the negative effect. But pitching coaches, it, it's tricky because we're not in the dugout, and you know I, I'm not talking to Kurt Young, I'm not talking to Ray Searidge. Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff we have to kind of pick up in the nooks and crannies is a pitch changing, is a spot in the rubber changing. You try to learn where a pitching coach may actually be making an impact. But I do believe that it's real in Oakland, and I do believe it's real in Pittsburgh. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, before we let you go, during the season, we always ask our Tuesday Tout experts to discuss some studs and duds for the balance of the season. Studs are the guys, of course, you'd really like to roster and who might be undervalued right now, while duds are guys who might be overvalued and headed for a fall and you don't want any part of them on your roster. So let's start with the hitter, Scott. How about an American League stud hitter? Well, I talked about Brian Dozier earlier, and I just want to say that if you can get him for Ian Kinsler, I'd do him in a second. You can get him for Dustin Pedroia, I'd do him in a second. I, I think I may add something to those deals to get them done. I think he's definitely legit. A uh, more under-the-radar guy, I like this Brock Holt in Boston. First base eligible third base eligible. They put him in the outfield for the first time in the majors. He's making all these highlight film catches. Gets on base. He's not going to hit a lot of home runs, but he's batting leadoff. Gets on base. Run a little bit. It's a really good park to hit, especially for him. His numbers in Fenway Park are fantastic. You may be in some formats where you can just skim him at home. I think that's a great play. Shane Victorino's rehab is going slowly. Farrell loves his kid. I think Brock Holt's going to play the rest of the season. He's going to be kind of like the Daniel Nava was a few years ago, and a little bit younger than Nava, but an out-of-nowhere guy. He's going to play a lot of different positions. He's not going to be a sexy player. He's not going to hit 20 home runs. I mean, he may just hit a couple the rest of the year, but he's going to be good everywhere else, good lineup spot, three positions, and I still think he's, he's under the radar in a lot of leagues. And how about a stud hitter in the National League? Charlie Blackman gets off to this fantastic start. And then he comes back to earth. I think everybody, everybody saw that coming to some extent. Now it's just this race for everybody to get off the bandwagon. All right, Charlie Blackman is not that good. You know, Corey Dixon should have been the center fielder anyway, and I, and I love Corey Dixon, to be, to be clear. But look at what Charlie Blackman can do. For one thing, he, he hit well last year in the second half. He didn't have a great walk strikeout clip, but he was getting on base in Colorado, high average. He makes terrific contact. He has improved the walk rate. He's hitting more home runs than anybody expected, so I don't know if the pop is something you necessarily want to buy into. I think he'll hit a home run now and again. He's not going to hit a ton of them. That, that's the thing I think he's overperforming the most is the power. But he has the profile of a 30-35 steel guy. That is not a fluke at all. I think the rest of the year we have a guy who makes contact, hits leadoff in Colorado. He's going to hit around 300. I think he ends up with 30-plus stolen bases, and he, he's not going to be a zero in home runs. I don't think he'll hit another 12 or so, but I think he might hit seven or eight or you know, five or six. People are so nervous about over-trusting surprise players that sometimes they sell them too cheaply. I was in a chat last night. One of my readers said, you can't find anybody who wants Blackman. I want you, the listener, to be the guy who wants Blackman. I think people, again, the guy who hasn't thought he was great early, he's slumped, he's coming back to earth, I want to cash out. I think you can get him under value. I think he's a top 20 outfielder who isn't priced that way in a lot of leagues. Now let's move on to our dud hitters. Scott, how about an American League dud you don't want on your roster? I'm from New England, so I love the Red Sox, but Dustin Pedroia, man, he'll play through injuries, which is great. This guy will show up and wants in the lineup no matter what, but his hand doesn't look right. His wrist doesn't look right. He hasn't hit for power the last year and a half. This year, his slugging is down to 381. He's only hit four home runs. He's not running either. He's two for six on the bases. His average, I think, is going to rebound. And he's still you know, in a good lineup slot in a team that's respectable on offense. It's not the juggernaut it was in some previous years. I don't see the pop coming back. I think he's playing hurt. I don't think he wants to run. And he's still got a big name. Uh, again, I, you know, I know you're going to have to sell his numbers if you try to trade him because people are you know, going to do their diligence. But I, I look at other sites and see them ranking him still as a top five, top six, top seven second baseman. Some sites have him higher than that. I, I think Dustin Pedroia is all name right now in a very mediocre game. Again, I'm a New England guy. I hate to say that. But uh, Dustin Pedroia, try to cash in on him. Yeah, there's plenty of leagues where a name is worth more than actual production, and if, if you have Dustin Pedroia in one of those leagues, certainly worth a try. How about a National League dud hitter you want no part of? Sometimes with rookies, you know, because we've seen some rookies, I think sometimes the buzzy guys come up and we just expect the world. And sometimes the best time to trade a guy is before he's played that much and shown that maybe he's not that ready yet. 
even though Gregory Polanco is taking the league by storm, it's a game of adjustments. People are going to get a book on him at some point. I just don't want to treat him like Mike Trout. I just don't want to treat him like a finished product just yet. Uh, you're going to want a lot for him. But because I think rookies sometimes are, are overpriced or we expect too much from these guys right when they get promoted, I think it might be a sweet time to, to trade Polanco. Not that I'm avoiding him, but it's all about value. I think it's a good chance in some leagues that he could be overvalued just because people get so excited about buzzy rookies and buzzy call-ups. Now let's move on to the pitcher, Scott. Uh, let's start with an American League stud pitcher, a guy you'd like to add to your roster, especially if you could get a value play. A couple of guys I'll mention before I get to somebody under the radar. I, I know everybody knows Sean Doolittle and, and Sashi Iwakuma are good, but one thing I love about these guys is because they throw the ball over the plate so much and they still strike guys out, and in the case of Doolittle, he strikes everybody out, it seems like. They're actually watchable. There's an old expression that you don't want to watch your clothes or just going to drive you crazy. I think Doolittle actually breaks that maxim. And Iwakuma is such a relaxing pitcher to watch as everything's around the plate. Not everybody in your league knows these guys are good, but I think Doolittle's a top five closer. I think Iwakuma's a top 15 starter, and you might get them under those prices. Uh, but Tansis was a guy we talked about earlier. I think he might be the Yankees closer at some point. But one more guy, AL East, Jake Odorizzi. 10.6 strikeouts per nine. His real ERA is over four. The expected ERA, the HQ metric, which is so great, says his ERA should actually be in the mid-threes. His fielding uh, independent pitching ERA is in the low threes. The strikeout rate is terrific. The ballpark is right. ERA over four. People may not understand just how good he is. I think he's going to be a star someday. I think he's the real deal, and I want him on as many rosters as I can get him. And how about a stud pitcher in the National League? Well, we talked about Joaquin Benoit earlier. I think it's a good chance Houston Street moves, so, so get him if you're a safe speculator. We talked about Ray Searidge earlier in Pittsburgh, their pitching coach. Now, Jeff Long was an all-star last year. Guy throws the ball over the plate, doesn't strike off that many guys, kind of a left-handed Kyle Loesch. Then he falls off the map, and he's completely off the fantasy map. But he's back up now, not walking guys. He's striking out a few guys. I know Patrick and I both bid on him in tout mixed. We didn't bid a lot on him, but the point is if he's on Patrick Davitt's radar, he's probably doing something good. I think a lot of people wrote off Locke when he crashed and burned last year. He looks like he's in fine form right now. Again, he's like Kyle Loesch, not going to walk anyone. He'll strike out a few guys. It's a pretty good park for a pitcher. Faces Tampa Bay this week, and they're having all sorts of trouble with lefties. I think it's a really good time to kick the tires on Jeff Locke. I did kick the tires on Jeff Locke in Tell Wars, and I believe you outbid me. Really? I thought somebody else outbid me, too. I think we both got beat on that one. Oh, well, I, I knew you did, and I knew I didn't get him, so I just moved on as soon as you, I saw You blame that. it on me. I, <laughs> yeah. I that's always a good point. Well, if I was third out of three, then I, obviously I misvalued him entirely. Uh, how about a, a dud pitcher in the American League? Justin Verlander, velocity lowest it's been in five years. His ERA and whip over the, over the last calendar year, I think the ERA is high threes. The whip is over 1.3. Every once in a while, he's going to look good. He looked very good against Cleveland this past weekend. He was dominant in Seattle about three weeks ago. There's going to be some messy starts. When, when he doesn't hit his spots, he's going, to allow, he's going to have some nights where he just gets hammered. I, I'm not saying you drop him. I'm not saying you treat him like, like, like you know, he's you know, the worst pitcher in baseball or anything, but I don't think he's anywhere near the Verlander we used to know. I, I think you know, once you get consumer confidence to rebound, and, and maybe it happened because he looked so good against Cleveland, maybe you need to see one more start like that move him. See if you can get Niwakuma. See if you can get even like a James Shields or somebody. Alex Cobb, somebody like that. I don't think Verlander is ever going to be a Cy Young contender again. I think he'll just be a number three, number four starter. And and on that team, you look, they have Scherzer. I mean, he hasn't been great this year, but they have Scherzer. They have Sanchez. They did have Fister last year. I mean, Verlander, to, to my the way I see it is just a he's a good pitcher and there is very deep rotation. But he's really like their number three starter right now. And finally, how about a dud pitcher in the National League? I think most people are going to see this, but I'll throw it out anyway. Shelby Miller, three point five six ERA doesn't sound that bad, but six point three strikeouts against four walks that doesn't fly for me. I don't trust the velocity. He doesn't look like he's healthy right now. He looks nothing like the pitcher we saw last year. I remember they shut him down early and weren't using him in the playoffs. Something's up with Shelby Miller. I don't know what it is, but I don't trust it. That You may not find a lot of buyers for that 3.56 ERA, but I could actually see a total crash here. I, I, I just don't think he's right right now. All right, Scott Pianowski, tell us where listeners can read more of your work and keep up with you. Okay, the Roto Arcade blog on Yahoo Sports, uh, where I am pretty much 24-7 uh, blogging and thinking and ranking and, 
and interacting, and we have a lot of fun there. And then on Twitter, Scott underscore Pianowski, that's P-I-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. I'm, I'm only there about 17 or 18 hours a day, so if, if you catch me in the wrong six-hour pocket, we, we may not talk. But other than that, love to talk baseball, love to talk World Cup soccer, love to talk music, whatever's on your mind, come by and uh, let's hang out. Who do you think is going to win the World Cup? You know, I would definitely pick Brazil if it wasn't there, if it wasn't their home thing. I think that actually works against you. So I'm going to go with a, a little bit off the radar. I'm, I'm going to go with France. I, I like a lot of their players. I've, I've seen them uh, half their roster play in the Premier League or some of the other European leagues, and I, I thought they were in very fine form Friday. Uh, I'm, going, I'm going with France. That's my pick. And I know some of our listeners uh, clap their hands over their ears and go, ma'am, 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 ma, I don't want to listen when I talk about fantasy football on this podcast, but uh, who's a, I know you cover fantasy football really extensively. Who do you think's a, a t- great sleeper pick for your NFL drafts this year? Bishop Sankey, running back, rookie for Tennessee, is going to be very good right away. And I'll give you a guy to stay away from. He's really good to me last year. Antonio Brown, uh, receiver for the Steelers, had a career year, but he's a little bit on the shorter side. Remember we talked about uh, Ventura, the Kansas City pitcher, and how you, I, I think you, you want pitchers who are bigger. I think in football you certainly want the bigger receivers. They're just more dominant, closer to the goal line. They're more likely to score touchdowns. A lot of variance with touchdowns. But I, I think uh, you want those bigger receivers. It has a better chance of winning those matchups when you get in close. So Antonio Brown will probably catch another 80, 90, 100 balls, but I think his touchdowns are going to come way down. And Pittsburgh's improved their other receivers anyway. He's somebody I would try to stay away from. Okay, Scott Pianowski, thanks very much for doing this. We'll try to catch up with you again at least once more during the season. Uh, I would love that, Patrick. I I can't say enough how much I enjoy your podcast, and it's really an honor and a a privilege to be on. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Scott Pianowski writes about fantasy sports for Yahoo Sports. Next up are HQ commentaries, the Metric Minute and Minor League Minute, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so have more fun more often with one-month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. One-month games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups and hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with one-month fantasy games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler. The gates are open for the July games at ChandlerPark.com. Entry deadline is this Sunday with games starting at just nine bucks. And for the first time, you can organize private leagues with your friends. Monthly fantasy baseball, more drafts, more pennant races, more fun. Give it a try. Hoagie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Quickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now and in the coming days for these features. Ray Murphy's Speculator column continues his look at leaders for the past 31 days, turning the spectacles to the pitchers this time. Stephen Nickrand looks at starting pitcher skills by times through the lineup. And Pete Sheridan has challenge indicators for June. Plus, we have all the regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes performance validation, buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and more. It's fantasy intelligence for winners, and it's only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute and leading off the Metric Minute. And telling us about home run per fly ball ratio for hitters and pitchers, here's analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This week's Metric Minute looks at the all-important home run per fly ball rate. This is one of the simpler metrics as there's no real complex formula or anything. Uh, Take it at face value. It's simply the percent of fly balls that are hit for home runs. Uh, The average home run to fly ball rate last year in baseball was 10%, and that's the case across most seasons. While the metric itself is rather simple, it's applied to hitters and pitchers very differently, so we'll focus on the differences here. Now, hitters tend to establish their own home run per fly ball rate over time. Any variances tend to regress back to that each hitter's three-year baseline. So if a hitter has averaged a 15% home run to fly rate the last three seasons but has a 10% mark this year, 
he's more likely to see that increase closer to his 15% baseline rather than regress uh, and stay at the, the Major League Baseball mean. A couple examples here. Nelson Cruz is off to an amazing start with Baltimore thanks to a 25% home, home run per fly ball rate. However, his three-year baseline is 18%, which is still fine, plenty good, but Cruz might have a tough time maintaining this rate of homers moving forward. Robinson Cano is another guy whose home run per fly ball rate um, is actually much lower than his baseline. He's at only 7% home runs per fly, uh, with a previous three-year baseline at 19%. Now with Cano, you do have to look at the change in ballparks uh, for some context here, but even still, you have to expect some more power from Cano in the second half given his longer track record. Uh, Pitchers are a bit different, as I mentioned earlier. In general, each pitcher's home run per fly ball weight will still vary each year, but always tends to regress back to the major league average of 10% rather than each individual baseline. Okay, a couple examples here. Marco Estrada, Wade Miley, both have horribly high 18% home run per fly ball rates this season. It's no surprise that their ERAs are well above where we thought they'd be at this point. So rates this high are extremely unlikely to hold up over the course of a full season. So expect better ERAs from both Miley and Estrada in the second half. On the flip side, uh, Garrett Richards has a 279 ERA thanks in large part to a fortunate 3% home run to fly ball rate. Richards is showing some nice skill growth, but you have to bet on him giving up some more home runs the rest of the way. 3% just is too low to stay sustainable. Anibal Sanchez is another guy. 1% home run to fly ball rate. Only given up one home run all year. That will change as the season goes on. So take a look at some of these home run to fly ball rates. And remember that for hitters, they tend to regress to each hitter's three-year baseline. While for pitchers, they usually go back to the league average of 10%. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for the Baseball HQ site and talks about various site metrics and how to apply them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Minor League Minute. And with a look at Washington outfield prospect Michael Taylor, here's Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Coming into the season, the 23-year-old Michael Taylor was seen as a toolsy athletic player who had tons of potential. He runs well, has a plus arm, good raw power, and has shown some ability to hit for average and get on base, but he's yet to put everything together. In 2013, for example, he stole 51 bases in 58 attempts and did have 41 doubles, but he also hit just 263 and struck out 131 times in 509 at-bats. The biggest knock on Taylor was that his approach at the plate was unpolished, and some scouts wondered if he'd ever be able to realize his full potential. Halfway through the 2014 season, Michael Taylor seems to have answered most of those concerns and is in the midst of a monster breakout season that has him on the verge of a 2020 mark before the All-Star break. In 69 games for AA Harrisburg, Taylor is hitting 336 with 17 home runs and 19 stolen bases. Taylor still swings and misses too often. He's already whiffed 87 times this year, but he's also on a career pace for walks. While there is still some work to be done, the Nationals' Michael Taylor makes an excellent target in NL-only keeper formats, and if he can hit and cut down on his strikeouts, has the potential to be a 30-30 player once he reaches the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, Nick Richards, Matt St. Germain, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week have looked at San Francisco second base prospect Joe Panic, Atlanta right-hander Juan Jaime, Colorado outfielder, first baseman Kyle Parker, Miami left-hander Andrew Heaney, and many more. And you also want to check the minor league watch list, highlighting prospects who might be a little less heralded, but who have a clear path to the majors, including Philadelphia outfielder Cam Perkins, Cincinnati third baseman Juan Silverio, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday Tout Edition for June the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 45 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert on this Tuesday Tout Edition, Yahoo Sports columnist and blogger Scott Pianowski. Scott's always fun to talk to. 
I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator. And Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon brought us the Minor League Minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a story on the site right now, a batting buyer's guide about hitters who have good reverse splits. Might come in handy for your daily gaming. Also, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also remember you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Feel free also to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt and be the first to know when a new Baseball HQ Radio podcast ready for download. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes edition featuring League Watch news reports, Todd Zola, pitcher matchups and master notes. And next Tuesday, another Tuesday Tout edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.